Redeemer Church, good morning uh, to you. Friends, good morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. As a church, we are in a series walking through just the signs that John includes that Jesus did. He tells us at the end of his gospel that, that he has included certain signs for the purpose of making those who hear the signs believe that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior. So I'm hoping that the Lord will use these sermons to help us who are tempted with fear to replace that fear with faith. And I'm hoping that for us who are being confronted with death, to know where it is that we can find life in the Word of God. Let's go to Him and let us pray. Oh God, would You speak to this anxious heart? Oh Lord, we pray that You would make strong those who are weak. And so we're asking that You would speak, that You would cause us through Your Word to see your glory, not just to hear words, but to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, to behold Him, our Savior, who has come to rescue us. God, would You empower the preaching and the hearing of Your Word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5, the the sign that we're looking at is in verses 8 and 9, but it'll be important to understand the significance of this work of Jesus by reading uh, all the, the, the verses surrounding the sign. So I'm going to read John 5, verses 1 through 18. This is so important. We're reading God's Word, and, and this passage in particular is, is pretty technical, so I want you to keep your Bibles open and listen carefully. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, 
The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The title of this sermon is Whole by His Work. The sermon summary is this, only Jesus can make the lame whole and the Lord happy. Only Jesus can make the lame whole and only Jesus can make the Lord happy. This sign, this third sign in John happens right after the second sign, whenever Jesus in the chapter before healed a boy with just one word. And so if you're paying attention already, you notice that there are similarities between the, this sign, the third sign, and the second sign. But the difference is that the second sign was really focused upon our Savior's ability. And as we read more around the third sign, we realize that this is really focused on the Savior's authority. We're at this turning point in the Gospel of John. Jesus' ministry is now primarily happening on Jewish holidays, and, and it is primarily happening in the conflict, in the, con, in the, in the uh, context, excuse me, of conflict. And this sign is, is given to us in our Bibles to convince us that what we need to believe about the authority of our Savior. Those lessons are taught to us in the midst of Jesus correcting those who are wrong. In other words, the sign is teaching us about the salvation we need and the Savior we have in the context of questions and doubts, and that is important. So it is through Jesus' interactions with two sets of characters that God is telling you and God is telling me that there are certain ways that we need to stop treating Jesus because of His authority. So point number one, look at this first interaction between Jesus and the lame who is waiting for an angel. There are certain things that we need to believe, John says, about Jesus through the signs. And the first correction comes when we see the lame waiting for an angel. There are all kinds of sad consequences of the coronavirus. I'm sad because I th 
yesterday I, I, I found out that uh, my daughter's dance recital is canceled. That's, that really is something that's sad for our family. We look forward to that day above almost every other day in the year. I can recognize, though, that that those who are graduating from high school, seniors in high school, are missing things that are probably more significant than just what my family is missing in this dance. And yet, there is there are people out there who are missing something that is even more significant than seniors in high school. I, I think about how sports, you know, they, they really don't matter all that much. And yet, this summer is supposed to be the 2020 Olympics, and it likely will be canceled. And so there's a sense in which one of the sad consequences of coronavirus probably is there are these athletes who have been training their entire life for this summer. This is their Olympics. Years and years of focus, years and years of disciplined work in order to achieve a lifelong pursuit of a medal. And they'll probably miss it. And there is something far more urgent that is happening at Bethesda whenever Jesus on this day enters into Jerusalem. When, when he walks up on this pool, we, we need to be really careful that we're not thinking of Great Wolf Lodge. Bethesda is not that kind of place. You, you notice that the people who are sitting around this pool, they're not on vacation. Actually, if you look at the text, there, there's no one actually in the pool yet. And uh, there, there are maybe hundreds of people there. Verse 3 tells us there are multitudes of invalids who are sitting underneath the shaded colonnades. You may not have noticed that most translations go straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Verse 4 does not exist in most translations because it probably is not original. It's not uh, originally what God wrote. I'm grateful in this case that King James does not have um, uh, the, the, the strictness that other translations do. They don't worry too much sometimes about what is original, what is not. Just kidding. Uh, King James people, love you. Uh, I'm grateful uh, for what verse 4 is, is recorded in the King James Bible. It says this, An angel went down at certain times into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever is the first to jump into the water after it is troubled, it is stirred, that one will be made whole of whatsoever disease he had. This is the belief of all the invalids gathered. This is why they're gathered under the roofs of this pool. Verse 7 suggests that, but King James has told us more. And, and so what we have here is racers, the paralyzed, are like Olympic athletes. And yet, this is no game. They're not waiting for the sound of a gun. What they're watching for is the sight of ripples in the water. You just think about who's there. Uh, you can see that the blind have a harder handicap in this moment, right? They can't see the moment that they're supposed to be the first one to jump in. 
Uh, so I'm guessing that the blind would have a habit of jumping the gun, so to speak, and, and would probably anger the rest because once the blind jump in, the water would take several minutes to still again so that all the rest can be watching for that moment that this invisible angel, so to speak, would jump in and, and bring healing to these, these waters. Really, it's the deaf who have the advantage, if you can put it that way in this, in this race. They may not be able to hear. They don't need to hear. They've got legs that work. They, can, they have eyes that work. They can get in there first. It's really the paralyzed who have it the worst. They can see the ripple. They know when the blind have jumped in too soon. But this is a speed event. And the man even tells us in verse 7, I haven't found anyone who will throw me in because everyone around me wants to get there first. Verse 7 is this man's sad answer to Jesus' strange question. Do you want to be healed? We've been told this man has needed to be healed for 38 years. In Jesus' day, that was the average lifespan of a human. In, in other words, as long as he, anyone should live, he has been a paraplegic probably. Jesus walks up to this man, and, and, and we can say because of the details in the story that he surely has walked up to the most desperate man in all of the pool. He's asked this strange question to the man he would have to ask that to least. We're supposed to be filled with pity because this is a man who is, in some ways, the representative of the rest. He, because he's the one who surely has had the experience, the deepest amount of affliction. He is like this picture to us of, of what is the worst wrong in all the world and he's waiting for an angel and then he sees Jesus who someone actually talks to him in this moment of desperation and so he wonders I'm I'm hoping against hope even though he's asked me this really strange question in verse 6 my answer to him is going to be will you be the one are you going to be a saint I've never met a saint I've never met anyone who would who would actually choose to throw me in before they got in first and no one wants to be around us no one hangs around will you be the one to to throw me in and yet friends I want you to understand not only is verse 4 not in our Bibles, but this idea is nowhere in our Bibles. God has never said that this man should sit by this pool and watch for the ripples and then he'll be healed. And I think that's what's going on whenever Jesus asks a strange question in verse 6. He says, and, and I want to use the, the King James again, do you want to be made whole? Let us remember that Jesus does not ask questions to get answers. Not the way we do. John has even been careful in verse 6 to tell us that Jesus knows things that mere humans don't know. He walks up on this man and he knows that he had already been there a long time. How could any man know that? He knows 
the truth. He sees how long this man has wanted healing. And then he asks, do you want to be made whole? Listen, Jesus doesn't ask questions to get answers. Jesus asks questions to get us to question our answers. Do you want to be made whole? Then why would you be watching the water? Why would you count on people? This would be like, I'm just trying to imagine what what we used to call out-of-town trips. Uh, And when I used to be gone, let's say for a week, like I was supposed to be gone this week at a conference, I imagine coming home after being gone a week and I find my child in, in his room and I've discovered that he has not eaten all week since, I've, since I had left. Kelly, this is just a story. This is not suggesting that this could ever happen, but just imagine with me that I come home and I see my beloved child who's not eaten for days and they're wasting away in malnutrition. And then I look to my child and I said, why are you sitting at a toy kitchen? And why are you chewing on a toy sandwich? That's the kind of question Jesus asks. It's like asking. It's like Jesus coming to a parent and saying, do you want what is best for your child? He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't really not know the answer. He, he understands that the parent doesn't know the answer. He asks, do you want what's best for your child to get the parent to question maybe they should stop treating their child like they are God? Maybe they should not let their child make all the rules and cater to their every whim. Because if they want what's best for their child, they will know their child needs to worship God who they will never worship if their parents worship them. Or he comes to another and says, do you want rest tonight? To get us to start to question the answers we've had, the lifestyle that we've been living. Maybe I, when he asked me that question, should start thinking You know, my day has been filled with thinking so much of myself and so little of God. And maybe that's why my fears are so big and my hope is so small. Maybe I'm so fearful because of my focus. Or he comes to anyone and says, why do you think you will be whole if you have a different job, if you have a different spouse, if you have a different church, if you have a different bank account? What he's asking the man to do is look at me if you want to be made whole. Listen to me. Only I can make you whole. And so he says, just ignoring the man who asked him to throw him in the water of superstition, Jesus speaks, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
This is the same Jesus as the last sign. His word works immediately. Then, and this is key, the next part of verse 9. That day was the Sabbath. The day this man was searching for life was the Sabbath, which is Saturday or the seventh day. In verse 16, John tells us that's what so chapped the Jews and their opposition to Jesus only gets worse from there. Only Jesus can make the lame whole and the Lord happy. Point number two, Jesus is brought into this interaction that then teaches us the salvation we need and the Savior we have, this interaction with the leaders of God's people who are accusing the judge. They, no less than this lame man who was waiting for an angel, they too needed to be corrected about the salvation we need and the Savior we have because they are clearly not whole when the experts on the law accuse the judge himself. Jesus alone has the power to do the good works that only God can do, which Jesus proved in the first part of the passage. Only God can speak life to the lame, and Jesus also has the authority in this second half, has the authority to tell us what to do. Jesus alone has that authority. Now, it is important to understand that the Jews are right to be sensitive to, to what people should and should not do on the Sabbath because God said this in Exodus 31. He said, if you work on the Sabbath, you will die. So there's sensitivity when they see this man carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And the way they've interpreted what God has said is that's some element of work. That sensitivity is not inappropriate. It was God who had commanded his people not to work on Saturdays. He did that Right after he saved the special people, he saved their lives out of this, this slavery to Egypt, and he protected them. And then after he saved their lives, he said, don't work on the Sabbath, keep it holy. It's going to be your special day where you especially worship. And there I want you especially to say, with your life and what you choose not to do, and what you choose to do, you say on the Sabbath, I do not live by my efforts to get me bread. I do not live by what I do to work. You stop working on the Sabbath so that you can demonstrate with your life that it is God and not your labors, not your works that keeps you alive. And it's so important. God says that, you know, if you're my people, if you trust me, 
It's so important that you bank your life on it. You don't have to gather bread on Saturday. You don't have to work to earn anything on Saturday. It's so important that if you say you're mine, if you say I'm your God, and yet you live like you give yourself life, then your life will end. It's really important. I'm not going to spend much time talking about how the Jews, whenever they're questioning this man, they skip right over the fact that he, he adds in there that he was just healed. And all they focus on is the fact that he's broken the Sabbath. I'm not going to spend time talking about how this man is, is healed by Jesus, but he's clearly not saved by Jesus because the moment he has a chance, he rats Jesus out. Although I should tell you that this is a clear sign of a lack of salvation because salvation is not primarily being saved from hell. Let me say it again. Salvation is not primarily being saved from hell. Salvation is primarily being saved from refusing to worship. Refusing to treat God for the honor he deserves. And this man does not do that. I don't want to spend time on those matters because my concern is the concern that the rebels have here, these leaders. And then what John is trying to teach us to believe in light of their concern. Verse 12, look again. They say, who is this man? Who told you that you are allowed to take up your bed when God is the one who told you? Who's the man who told you to do what God said you should not do? Who is this man who thinks he has the authority to give you a law that conflicts with God's? That is why, verse 16... They are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not just that they perceived that that he encouraged someone else to do a work on the Sabbath, but that he was doing these works, this this miracle that happened in 8 and 9. It's that he did this work on the Sabbath that they are so upset. And Jesus answers them in verse 17 very clearly. My answer to that is I am God. Why why do I work on the Sabbath? Because my father has been working until now. He's never taken a day off yet. And so I'm going to be working because I am God. Jesus is making this statement that we could even liken to that phrase that we're familiar with, like father, like son. Caleb is a bishop. My son is a bishop because his father is a bishop. His identity is determined by his father. I could also say that Caleb is a human because his father is, by essence and nature, a human because Caleb was not born to Wally Bear, our miniature Cocker Spaniel, all those years ago. Jesus is making this kind of argument. My essence and the way that you think that I relate to the Sabbath law should not just be applied to me in the same way you would apply it to any other man because I am God in the flesh. 
And yet it is completely clear from what Jesus goes on to say in chapter 5 that he is making the argument, I didn't disobey any of God's laws. You, you want to go back to Moses. Well, well, now that you're accusing me and you're bringing me into this courtroom, well, don't you remember that Moses, he, he said you shouldn't just defend yourself. Whenever you come to court, you should have... Uh, witnesses for the defense. And you need not just one, but two. I'll give you one, John the Baptist, and my second one's even better. It's God himself. He said, God has affirmed at the end of chapter 5 that I am his son, and therefore I can do what I just did on the Sabbath, and, and it's right for this man to, to do what I told him to do on the Sabbath, because I have just given him life the same way God has always been giving life on the Sabbath, the same way the way that you celebrate the Sabbath is with thanksgiving that God is the one who gives you life. So it's completely appropriate. I've not called him to disobey the Sabbath. I've called him to obey the Sabbath. It's really clear that John, the gospel writer, is, is adding a third witness to, to Jesus' defense right here. He's really clear uh, to, to vindicate Jesus that he's not someone who is making God unhappy with his disobedience. Jesus is clearly living to make God happy in obedience. He even, when he sees the man next, verse 14, encourages him don't sin. I don't call you to sin against God. I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, do not sin anymore. Of course, the man immediately sins. The very next verse says, he betrays God the Son. And he betrays him to people who clearly mean harm to Jesus. This sign is warning. And I think it, it's warning us to understand that spiritually we need to be careful that we're not sitting under a colonnade as the blind were in Bethesda. The great irony what you and I, who have the same sensitivities as the Jews, who have the same sense of self-righteousness, the irony is Jesus did not break God's law. He just offended their interpretation of the law. The irony is that the one they're accusing for breaking God's law is actually keeping God's law and even fulfilling the fullness of God's law, which is to love God and love neighbor. They're the ones who are not loving this lame man. They're not saying anything about the, they're not rejoicing at all that life has been given to this man who never knew life. And they are intimidating this man to dishonor God himself. That's the irony. It's completely turned on its head. And friends, uh, when I read this, I am warned to be very careful at which violations I prosecute. Which violations do you prosecute? Whose laws? Are those people that you're punishing breaking.
More often than not, it will be yours and not God's, and more often than not, you will be convinced it's God's. And yet there is something very important that the Jews can teach us, and that is that God does have the authority to tell you and me what to do. This is something they know that the rest of the world does not know. You need to know. God has the authority to tell you what to do, and God has the authority to take your life if you don't obey him. What they completely miss is what Jesus then reveals in verse 30. Go down to verse 30 where he says, I judge. And my judge is perfectly matching the will of the one who sent me. I am God, and you have just accused the very man who is going to judge you. So, the signs are given to us that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him we may have life. Believe this. God in heaven has authorized His Son to judge lawbreakers. He alone has the authority, the credentials, the the right to judge because He alone avoids breaking God's law. And so be warned, it does not go well for the Jews. It is deadly to oppose Jesus. And yet here, here, not just what, not just his interaction with them, but what, what we're to hear, what we see in what he does. He says, my father until now has been working and I am working. Look at his works. He is communicating that the only way that any person, any Jew could take a day off is because his father had been working until then. The only way that anyone can take Saturday off is, and, 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 and still be alive is, don't you understand this? If you just think about this logically, it's not like the universe has been running itself on that day. Or any day, the only way that anyone can take a day off and still have life is that God never takes a day off. And so Jesus says, of course I'm doing these works on today. Now I want you to hang with me for a few more minutes. Because when we get to a passage about the Sabbath, there's, there's complexity here. I have been praying. I pray now, Holy Spirit, help us to understand. John is saying, when John comes into the story in verse 9, verse 16, verse 18, the storyteller comes in and tells us what the big deal is. And it all has to do with what Jesus does on the Sabbath and why he says it's okay. So hang with me on the Sabbath. The law that God gave to his people is patterned after what God experienced after creating the world, after spending six days working and creating the conditions for life a world where people can live, but not just where they can live, where they can live with him. On the seventh day, he said, 
I've done it all, and it, it all is very good. My work is done, and so he rested. Beloved, that very good work was ruined in a real way. The moment humanity no longer found life as life with God, but sinned against God, and there was a real sense in which God could no longer rest. He could no longer enjoy that perfect world with his people. So listen, our greatest threat to rest is that we do not listen to God's law. And these, these Jews are like pictures of, of us. We don't trust him as God. The Father has been working until now, Jesus says, not just in the sense that he's always been sustaining your life. You've never actually provided for yourself, but he's also been working until now to restore the rest that was ruined by sin. And so this sign, this work that Jesus does, it is calling us to believe that Jesus is the king that God had promised in Isaiah 35. When your God comes to save you, he will strengthen those who have weak knees. He will make the lame leap. He is saying, this is the God who is going to make you whole. But this sign shows also, that the salvation we need and the Savior we have is giving us a healing far deeper than what is physical. The only thing stranger than the question in verse 7 is the comment in verse 13. The man who gets healed by Jesus doesn't even have time to say thank you or what's your name, sir. Jesus got out of there because there was a crowd there. There was a crowd there. You know who's in the crowd? It's the invalids. who Jesus could have healed every one of them with a single word, and he doesn't. He leaves. We've got to reckon with that. You need to know Jesus does not leave because he does not care about their need. He leaves because he knows that speaking everyone's physical healing is not what anyone ultimately needs. He hints at this in verse 14 whenever he sees the man in the temple and he says, you are well now, you are made whole now, sin no more, that nothing worse. This is shocking what Jesus is saying. Nothing worse may happen to you? Worse than 38 years as an invalid? I mean, I have talked to even, even moral doctors, people who the, the community would see as, as moral and, and good, and, and they will warn you. Don't you want to know if, you're, if the baby you're pregnant with has Down syndrome? Don't you want to know before? Don't, don't you think it'd be merciful to abort that baby? You, you understand, if you were given the option, can I die now 
or spend the next 40 years in a wheelchair. What do you mean so that nothing worse happens to you? Being an invalid is terrible, and Jesus is not insensitive to that. But, but beloved, this is, this is what he's saying. Bethesda is not the same world as Genesis 1. The, the, the multitudes of invalids is the whole world. It's the world of Genesis 3, and the greatest threat is not sickness. It is sin. Sickness would not be here apart from sin, and that means that sin is the root problem. That is why Jesus commands the man, do not sin anymore. What's worse than a lifetime of sadness? What is worse than the cruelty of ugly People, it is facing an eternity of God's righteous anger. That's what's worse than facing the cruelty of ugly people, is if you face God when you are not whole in your soul, if you face God without forgiveness, it will be worse. And he will be right to punish. And so... The good news that Jesus is talking about. My, when, why do I do these things on the Sabbath? Is, uh, uh, the good news is that I heal lame limbs because I've come and I'm doing the work of the Father that he sent me for. I'm ultimately going to heal sinful souls. And greater is my concern for your, than, than for your wholeness physically. Greater is my concern for your holiness spiritually. Beloved, this is what we're to believe from this sign. This is what this gives us and why John records this. Because we need to know that God has authorized his son to make the lame whole. And we need to know that God, Jesus alone, has the authority to give life. He has authority to do it. He has authority to do it. He can give life to others because he's the only one who doesn't deserve the worst. He's the only one who has not sinned. He's the only one who has made the Lord happy totally. And therefore, he can do a work that can heal body and soul. And that's what ends up happening. Verse 18, they are determined to kill him. They do kill him on a cross. And when he does it, he's doing the works that the Father sent him to do. The deeper, better works that God has sent him to do. The picture of the lame man healed, he does for our, our own souls. He's on the cross dying for our law-breaking. He's dying on the cross for the ways that we've been blind to God, thinking we're being righteous, thinking we're doing enough and not doing enough. He's also dying, suffering because he doesn't deserve that kind of pain, that kind of punishment. He is suffering like the lame. He is suffering like the invalid. He's bearing our shame on the cross. All of this comes together on the cross so that we might be forgiven of what worse could happen to us, the death penalty for our sins. But not only that, so that we can be granted the righteous life that only Jesus has that we need to get in. To God's presence, do you want to be made whole? If you do, do not only think of your limbs. Do not only look for something that won't last. This man doesn't live much longer. 
the answer for the rest that we're all searching for is not the survival of the fittest, like the superstition of all those people around Bethesda. Who can get there first? It's not any kind of Darwinian idea. You can work all you want to please God, and you will be weary. It can't be survival of the fittest to give your soul rest because we are all bearing suffering in this world and we are weary. We're looking for rest. But you can be made whole, not by the survival of the fittest, but by the rescue for the lame. Friends, there is only one who can work the work of giving life. And this is how we Sabbath. This is how we rest every day, not just one day. We cease our striving. And we rest in the Son of God who works while others rest. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. And we confess that only he can make the lame whole. And only he can make you happy. Help us to rest in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.